Welcome to the Foreign Affairs Inbox, the election edition. My name is Robin Gloss, and I'm a junior majoring in international affairs and economics at the Elliott School. This season, my co-host Lucas Miller and I are bringing you a safe and socially distant season of the Foreign Affairs Inbox. We're calling it the election edition. We're going to look at the U.S. presidential election and how it relates to big questions in international affairs. As always, we'll have experts helping us engage on complex topics. Today I'm joined by Cynthia McClintock, a professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University. Dr. McClintock holds a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a BA from Harvard University. Previously, she served as the president of the Latin American Studies Association, was a member of the Council of the American Political Science Association, and was a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Dr. McClintock, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast to talk with me today. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. To start us off, can you tell me a little bit more about what the relationship between Latin America and the United States has looked like historically? Historically, it's been bumpy, you know, especially during the Cold War, because the left was quite strong you know, in Latin America, and the perception was overreaction to that by uh, the United States. And then I'd say in general, Latin America, in part because of the Cold War experience, was critical of United States military action overseas. So the war in Iraq, for example, was unpopular and gave rise to you know, a number of different uh, tensions. Over the last uh, 25 years or so, end of the Cold War, uh, relations improved considerably uh, in general. And then uh, under Obama uh, also improved. Uh, Latin America was very pleased to see the opening to Cuba. There was a widespread uh, perception, or rightly or wrongly, of David against Goliath with respect to Cuba and the United States. So that was you know, warmly received. The Trump administration, you know, not surprisingly, given the president's rhetoric about uh, Mexican immigrants, was uh, a surprise, I would say, in most of Latin America. And you know, there have been uh, you know, some presidents in Latin America who uh, look warmly towards President Trump, but the image of Latin America and the region as a whole you know, plummeted. You know, the perception of America first was not at all welcome. Beyond sort of the perception of the United States, um, are there policy changes that were notable under the Trump administration? Yes, indeed. No, yes, indeed. As in a lot of the rest of the world, the Trump administration was quite eager in a number of areas to reverse uh, Obama administration policies. And now, as I mentioned, uh, the Obama administration had launched this uh, dramatic reopening of relations with uh, opening of, of the embassies of the two countries, but the Trump administration uh, reversed all of that, you know, ending policies for remittances and trying to end the travel as much as possible. So that was probably the most salient you know, example. There was also a lot of reversal of the immigration policies, although a lot of that is more a linking of the domestic policy and the international policy. Clearly, it was also unwelcome, you know, in most of Latin America, not just the rhetoric, but for Central American countries in particular, had seen the United States as, as if not welcoming, still something of a symbol of the Statue of Liberty. And there were a lot of policies towards Central America in terms of economic support, development support, you know, that, uh, uh, were also new uh, under under Trump. And then climate change. Now, obviously, this withdrawal from the Paris Accord uh, that the Trump administration was uh, implementing, that was a major change. Uh, the Venezuela policy it was less of a change than kind of a 
uh, intensification uh, with lots of different ramifications that, than, than what the Obama administration had been doing. In a lot of ways, the Biden administration has been focused more on domestic policy than foreign policy, especially during the campaign. But what do we know so far about foreign policy in Latin America? Now, building on what we were just talking about, uh, there will be a return to you know a lot of the Obama administration policies for for much uh, of the region. I think most important, you know, is the reversal of the tone. You know, so we've already referred a couple of times to the America first position of the Trump administration. During the campaign, you know, Biden has made it very clear that uh, he wants, once again, to have a tone of respect uh, for other countries in the world, including Latin American countries, uh, that he wants to work uh, with partners uh, in the region, partners elsewhere in general, to use diplomacy once again to try to achieve results. So there will be much more effort in multilateral institutions, the Organization of American States in particular, to work to encourage democracy and build democracy in the region. When he was vice president, Joe Biden was quite involved in Central America and trying to work with the Central American countries to achieve greater economic growth, greater democracy, greater prosperity and justice in the Central American countries to uh, limit the number of people from those countries who would want to come to the United States and also to help those countries in general. I think we'll, we see a return to that. And one of the reversals under the Trump administration had been to end U.S. support for anti-corruption uh, initiatives. The Biden administration will be uh, returning you know, to those anti-corruption efforts, again, in part to alleviate the uh, flow of refugees from those countries, in part to help encourage democracy. No change, too. There will be clearly, uh, you know, as we all know, uh, Joe Biden has promised the, the return to the, the Paris Accord. That will be very welcome in much of the region where, uh, you know, the environmental uh, damage has been just horrific in a lot of Latin American countries. And so having a new multilateral effort for that will be very important. Policy towards Venezuela uh, will be challenging. Venezuela is uh, one of the most important countries in the region. It's the country with the largest oil reserves in the entire world. And Venezuela once was a very prosperous, quite democratic country. Now, you know, millions of Venezuelans fled the country, the uh, economic plummet year after year. It's, it's very, very tragic. The Maduro government is more ensconced now than it was four years ago. How can uh, Joe Biden return Venezuela to democracy and prosperity? I think the challenges that are facing Latin America today, both in terms of economic growth and development, as well as corruption and political instability, are some of the most volatile political changes in the world. From protests in Chile to the continued crisis in Venezuela, like you mentioned, to the ousting of the Peruvian president, uh, Latin America is a country with a lot of social and political change that happens very quickly. From the perspective of foreign policy officials in the US, which issues do you think are going to define the next four or eight years of relations between the US and Latin America? You no, know, the effort for democracy, which entails, needless to say, an effort on the part of for stability. You know, if the democracies are stronger, they'll be more stable. And the anti-corruption efforts, you know, if there's less corruption, the democracies will be more stable. Uh, you just referred to Peru and, you know, corruption was the major ongoing issue in the 
conflicts between the executive and the legislature there, and they're a major factor in protests you know, everywhere. Those are clearly very important issues. The climate change issue, as I said, there have been surveys in which climate change is the number one foreign policy concern in many Latin American countries. Latin Americans in many regions actually see firsthand experience the problems of environmental degradation in a way that I would say a majority of people in the United States do not, but you know, the devastation to water supplies, the change in agricultural patterns, you know, all of these are, are very evident. So this is an extremely important uh, issue. And then of course for Mexico uh, and the Central American countries, immigration is key. As I said, it's kind of an intermestic issue. They do want to see effort at humaneness, you know, an effort at fairness. The United States, we've, we've built a lot of our position in the world on, you know, the image of Statue of Liberty. And obviously that has been, you know, very, very damaged during the Trump administration. So the challenge for, for Joe Biden to, to find a way, on the one hand, restore that image, but also with the awareness that a great large number of people in the United States are skeptical and they see the culture changing around them and they're not happy at the pace of, of the change in the culture. So it, it's it's not simple at all to you know build a new set visions uh, for when an immigrant should be allowed to enter the United States, uh, live in the United States and when not. There's some things that I think a lot of people in the United States are in agreement on. Uh, DACA, that's very likely to, to be, I'd say virtually 100% certain to, to go ahead. Uh, DAPA, which is for the undocumented parents of legally born uh, U.S. Uh, children. I, think there's a, I hope that will go through as, as well, be a slightly more controversial, but not as controversial. Many, many of the undocumented immigrants in the United States are now, have now been living here 20 or 30 years or 40 years. It doesn't, you know, having these people in the shadows is uh, against, I would argue, uh, American, you know, American values. As I suggested before, I think you know Venezuela is extremely challenging. Uh, you know we've seen from the examples of you know Iraq, you know Syria, Egypt, the, the Castros in, in in Cuba. This is very very challenging. Uh, to top it off, Maduro has a great deal of support from Russia. It has a great deal of revenue and is in debt to China, which has a big stake in the country. And is worried about. Uh, what would happen under a new uh, administration. So this is not going to be easy. I would submit that one of the problems with the Trump administration was policy toward Venezuela was reported in John Bolton's book, where you know he perceives that the Trump policy was less oriented towards achieving democracy in Venezuela than it was towards winning votes in Florida. Uh, and that it was a policy of rhetoric without a great deal of concern for whether or not it would actually succeed. The problem was that that kind of discourse of a resort to the military option alienated other Latin American countries, alienated the European countries, and made it extremely difficult uh, to build a coalition you know, that could to build incentives, disincentives, carrots and sticks that might uh, persuade Maduro to exit. The Biden administration has definitely made clear that reaffirming its commitment to international climate agreements is one of its priorities. But beyond those 
sort of political commitments, what are some of the concrete steps that the U.S. can take to support Latin American countries who are facing the impacts of climate change already? Well, what the United States does at home should never be underestimated. The model of the United States behavior is extremely important because it's hard to convince Latin American countries to limit, for example, greenhouse gas emissions if other major polluters are not. So if there's not action by the United States, uh, it could be that a small country like Bolivia or Honduras, whatever they do, it's not going to make that much difference. So if they agree and make a large effort to curb their emissions and the United States does not, this is a failure. So it's not going to happen. So it's very, very important to know what the United States does you know, here at home. And then I believe that the Biden administration would also you know, work more closely with NGOs in Latin America that are working to limit greenhouse gas emissions. This is not something where a Biden administration would be uh, ordering any country to do anything. You know? And the point of the Paris Accords was to get everybody uh, on board with submitting their own pledge of reductions of greenhouse gas emissions. So I would say that by its example, the United States has to encourage all countries to want to do better you know, on their own. So I think that can happen, but it's going to be something that comes from those countries, uh, again, encouraged by the United States example, encouraged by civil society. What the Biden administration can do is to They'll help work with civil society in these countries to give them to respect, to give them protection in the sense of, hey, we know who you are. and We're going to uh, help efforts, too, to go after uh, any assaults against these individuals. No, so I think I think a lot of progress can be made by a Biden administration committed to the mitigation of climate change. On a more country by country basis, we've seen a lot of elections in the last two years in Latin America. And since we're focusing on the election in the United States this season of the podcast, I think it would also be interesting if you could speak a little bit to what trends we're seeing in electoral politics across the region. Well, as you suggested at the start, I think Latin America is usually a turbulent region, and it's been very turbulent uh, in the last uh, couple of years. The most worrisome election uh, last year was in Bolivia. And I think, unfortunately, it's an example of both the intense conflict within uh, a number of Latin American countries, largely on a left-right uh, dimension and kind of the continuing weakness of hemispheric institutions to to cope with that, and also sadly the Trump administration's uh, exacerbation you know, of of the situation. So what happened in Bolivia was you know fall of of 2019. Eva Morales, who had been an indigenous leader elected back in 2005. He had been in power from 2005 through uh, 2019. Needless to say, a lot of Bolivians thought that was too long. And it, there had been a referendum that uh, was decisively against Morales' reign again, but he proceeded, as quite a few authoritarian leaders have done in Latin America, to kind of get the cha rules changed so that he could run again. So that in itself was, okay, not a positive thing, right? And again, there have been a number of leaders on the left and the right in Latin America trying to stretch, you know, their tenure. And 
Evo Moraz at the start had been very popular. I mean, he by most dimensions, he did a great job in terms of building social inclusion in Bolivia. He was a leftist, but he ran a solid economy. The macroeconomic numbers were, were very popular. Bolivia was not Venezuela by any stretch of the imagination. But as I indicated, for a majority of Bolivians, it was time for a change. So what happened in uh, Bolivia, there is a runoff election if the winner uh, of the first round does not achieve 40% of the vote. And the question was whether or not uh, Evo had achieved that you know, in you know, in the first round. As often happens in Latin American countries that where an authoritarian president is trying to rig the election, the vote counting stopped you know, on the night of the election. And it wasn't until, you know, two days, I think a day or two after the election that the count is kind of publicly resuming uh, once again. And what do you know, no, Evo's doing better after the count is resuming. The Organization of American States steps in and says there were irregularities and a lot of Bolivians agreed and there were severe protests. Uh, Evo feared for his life and fled uh, the country amid uh, total uncertainty and confusion, uh, the Speaker of the Congress, uh, Janine Agnes, became the interim president. She moved quickly you know, to the right, very to the right. And as I said, there have been a lot of changes under Evo that many Bolivians welcomed, in particular, uh, the greater social inclusion, the greater ethnic inclusion. And Agnes was reversing that dramatically. And there was prosecutions, protests, counter-protests. So it was a very a very difficult situation. New elections were scheduled, but then with COVID-19, uh, they were postponed. And it wasn't until about two months ago that finally a new election was held. And thankfully, that election went smoothly with a victory uh, in the first round for the candidate who was supported by, by Eva Morales. And the country has returned to a to considerable degree of calm, but not without a great deal of turmoil, a great deal of tragedy and protest and instability in the country that uh, has set it back. So once again, the need for, I would say, both a much stronger pro-democratic position by the United States, where the Trump administration was seen as guilty of excessive proximity to Agnes, uh, given that she was taking policies that were far away from what had become the norm uh, no, in Bolivia and beyond what her, her position, no, uh, acting as if she had a mandate rather than had become the interim president by accident. And the Organization of American States uh, perhaps rushed to judgment, perhaps did not clarify its position enough and was somewhat discredited as well. So the need in the OAS for you know a building, you know, back of the organization for uh, or for the protection of democracy unit efforts by the OS were perceived as too much uh, beholden to the Trump administration and lacking in the legitimacy. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but it was kind of the perception after several years of the Trump administration trying to uh, mold multilateral institutions to their its liking. Can you talk a bit more about what populism looks like in Latin America in 2020 and how that might be different from the populist leaders of the 90s and early 2000s? I, I would say that you know, populism is a concept we use a lot in both Latin America and, and the United States. Since it's used a lot, it can be used quite loosely. 
But among scholars, we tend to have a pretty clear consensual definition of the term. So I would say, at least among us, populism has not changed that much from the 1990s to the 2000s because we continue to define it in the same way. So we define essentially as a leader who casts politics in terms of the people versus the elites and claims to be on the side of the people against these uh, corrupt uh, elites and also says that it is he, it's almost always been he, <laughs> is the savior who can represent the people against these uh, corrupt uh, elites. So this definition works for most of us with respect to President Trump as well, you know, who comes in as an outsider saying, no, he's going to drain the swamp, right? He promises to drain the swamp. Uh, he is not, you know, a friend of all of these people who sit in Washington and just uh, make corrupt ties that they benefit from without any interests uh, of the people. And that the people have been swindled by these elites over the years who are you know, exploiting them through their taxes and whatever. And again, the emphasis individual leader just like you know, president trump it's 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 him you know it's he alone he's it's not you know what we're seeing now with president-elect biden is an emphasis on the team he's going to bring in good people who are going to help him right that's not the populist way the populist way is me no it's i i'm going to do it i'm going to do it alone i'm the savior there's a lot of almost religious overtones you know in that so so this is the definition that that's again not Everybody but scholars have, have, have tended to use. Populism has been around a long you know, time you know, in Latin America, in part because of the reality that, unfortunately, a lot, of, uh, a lot of legislators, a lot of presidents were corrupt. A lot of them were part of a swamp. And uh, it was pretty easy for, you know, sort of the man on horseback, the Cadillo, to claim uh, to be looking out for everybody else and the appeal of the individual. I mean, if... If, if you know that, you know, an awful lot of legislators, a lot of politicians are uh, are sleazy, well, you know, you need an individual to come on in who's going to be tough, who's going to break it up. So so the appeal was um, no longstanding. It was very understandable. No, this goes back, a, you know, a long ways in, in most of the Latin American countries. I think that the, perhaps the, 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 development of the concept in uh, the 90s and the 2000s was to kind of think about it as applying to both leftist and rightist leaders. So, for example, uh, in Peru, you know, Alberto Fujimori was perceived as a populist leader uh, of the right. Uh, also, Alvaro Uribe in Colombia, populist leader of the right. So they, they had the messages that we've just been talking about, but their overall solutions uh, were, were pro-market, more militaristic, more uh, more repressive of, of uh, insurgencies. Uh, at the same time, you know, there are other uh, leaders who are populist uh, on the left. Lopez Obrador, as I just suggested, is widely considered a populist, not particularly far left, but, uh, but much more to the left than, than, than to the right. I would say kind of our awareness that populism can be both a left on the left and the right is kind of what's developed over the last 20, 30 years. 
We've talked a lot about the challenges that the region is facing, but I'd love to end this on a lighter note. Um, so if there are examples of countries or international institutions that are making progress on social or economic or political issues, I'd love it if you could highlight a couple of examples. It's It's been a very tough time you know, in general uh, for Latin America because of the pandemic. There's so many countries hit hard uh, by the pandemic, so... You know, economic growth will will decline this year. You know, that said, Latin America is, as your question was saying, it's people, Latin Americans are very creative. They're very resilient, invariably impressed by, by the resilience in the face of challenges that, you know, so severe. Perhaps I'll come back to Peru. And you mentioned at the start that Peru had three presidents in a week and a president, uh, two presidents being ousted, one president who was impeached, a uh, very popular president who was impeached in what was widely considered a very unwise and uh, self-interested move by the legislature. The Peruvian people, very bravely, especially young people, standing up. I mean, the, the, the strength and you know, the bravery, courage of young people to do that was, was dramatic, and it was successful. they have been put on notice by young people that Peruvians are now expecting them to get their act together, and they come together. The new uh, Speaker of the Congress, and therefore the new president, there are no vice presidents left. They've gone through all the vice presidents. So the new Speaker, and therefore the new president of the country is Francisco Sagasti. By all accounts, including my own, uh, Francisco Sagasti is uh, very knowledgeable, very honest, very committed president who is right now doing his best to meet these tremendous challenges that we just have been speaking about, uh, as well as to hold a free and fair election in April of 2021. One topic that I didn't uh, address that I'd like to address for a couple of minutes in, in the whole area of challenging policies is the drug war. We talk in the United States about the war in Afghanistan being the United States' longest war. By some definitions, that might be true, but it was President Nixon who launched the drug war, which has been focused on Latin America in particular now for, for decades, primarily because it's within Latin America that uh, the vast majority of the cocoa that's ultimately consumed here as cocaine is is grown. The results of the drug war, I would submit to date, have been nothing short of, of disastrous. They have totally failed to achieve the goal, which is less, obviously, less consumption of drugs within the United States, less uh, addiction in the United States. They have not decreased the supply you know, from Latin America, which of course was a primary uh, goal. And at the same time, as the drug industry has continued in Latin America, the violence and the corruption have greatly exacerbated you know, the challenges to, to good governance you know, in the region. It was really interesting, I think, that in the recent elections within the United States, that initiatives for prevention and treatment rehabilitation you know, rather than sanctions repression were you no know, one in quite a few number of states. It will be complicated, but you know, if the Biden administration can try to develop a much more humane position on the war on drugs, I think it would be very salutary towards for the region. You mentioned Venezuela as a country that the United States will need to focus on in terms of foreign policy goals, but are there any other countries that the United States should be paying extra close attention to? 
I believe that because of the proximity, Mexico and Central American countries are the most highest priority. Lopez Obrador appeared to believe that it was in Mexico's interest to uh, be friendly with the Trump administration. And accordingly, Lopez Obrador was perceived to uh, uh, exceed uh, to Trump administration demands on, on immigration issues. You know, given that that was a pretty positive relationship, so there could be a little bit of tension there at the start. And you know, my guess is that the two will work it out. Lopez Obrador is, is pragmatic. And of course, Biden is as well. Uh, then also very important, as I've alluded to, are the Central American countries that have tended or generally not as prosperous as the South American countries, uh, more people in poverty in those countries, also weaker democracies. These are, of course, the countries that have been sending the most refugees to the United States. So for reasons of the, the immigration issue and because these are countries that are more troubled in themselves, they will be ones that Biden will be especially concerned about. Thank you so much for all of your insight and amazing knowledge about the topic. I'm always fascinated to hear about regional trends. So thank you again. Oh, it's extremely interesting and extremely important. And I'm really hopeful that the Biden administration will make positive changes for the role of the United States in, in the hemisphere. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Foreign Affairs Inbox Election Edition. Check out our past episodes on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you have any questions for our team or our guests, DM the Elliott School on social media or send us an email at rsvpesia at gwu.edu. Stay healthy.